Welcome to the Headset Sports Podcast. The show where athletes, coaches, and executives share their stories and insights regarding the mental side of sports. With your host, Jason Gallia. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our show, and do I have someone for you today? You know, each and every opportunity I get to speak to people, I am constantly amazed with their stories, stories of inspiration that help them get to the incredible feats they've achieved, stories of the adversity that they had to overcome to find success, stories of fortitude, resiliency, things that would cause many of us to say, maybe I should go in a different direction. Maybe this wasn't for me. Each of these stories that that I'm fortunate enough to experience and hear firsthand are inspiration for me. But this story that I'm about to share with you today is one like nothing I've ever experienced. And I promise you, this should be the next Disney sports inspiration movie. We've seen incredible movies like The Blind Side. We've seen incredible movies like Invincible. Stories of the ultimate underdog who is able to reach miraculous feats. We've even seen movies that have provided us with great inspiration. Inspiration that inspired this individual to pursue a dream that many would think was not only unachievable, but absolutely crazy. Stories like Cool Runnins. For many of you who might remember that movie, you'd remember the incredible true story of the first Jamaican bobsled team. Well, let me just tell you, our guest was not only inspired by that movie, but was taken to absolute extreme heights of being able to follow a passion, an inspiration, and just all-around desire to achieve greatness from that movie. If some of you know who I'm talking about, that's fantastic because you're so further ahead than I was when I learned about this incredible athlete. For those of you like myself who may not be able to put together these hints I'm giving you of incredible inspiration, incredible resiliency, and incredible know-for-all as to how to take so many different talents, pull them together so you could achieve a dream. I'm talking about a person who's inspired me to be a better person than I, I ever thought I could be, a more resilient person and even a more resourceful person than I ever thought I could be. Today I'm bringing you an incredible, incredible story in the one and only Benji Alexander. Benjamin Alexander is the first person to represent the country of Jamaica as their very first alpine skier. This man's journey to greatness is absolutely incredible. At the age of 32, Benji decided to take a skiing lesson. Not only did this transform his desire to become an extreme athlete, 
but it caused him to find a deep passion which helped him pursue the most ultimate dream for any skier, any winter sport athlete, and that was to attend the Winter Olympics at Beijing in 2022. Benjamin Alexander's life is one of incredible fortitude, and he is the ambassador of I can do it. He's the ambassador of let's try, and he is the king of being absolutely fearless. This man's journey to Olympic greatness is one that can inspire all of us to be better people, to be more courageous people, to be people who no longer fear that which they have not experienced, but yet turn fear into a source of inspirational rocket fuel. Benjamin Alexander, a.k.a. Benji, is a man of diverse talent. We're talking about a person who went from being a wealth management executive to following a passion for music and entertainment and becoming a world-class DJ. Yes, <laughs> I know how crazy this sounds. We're talking about a person who had a, more or less an Ivy League education, had an incredible career in finance as a, as a money management expert, who decided to leave all of that security, leave that which he studied to become, to follow a passion and become a world-class DJ. I mean, he traveled the world, Benji, playing discs, living the life of a rock star DJ, to then leave everything and become an Olympic athlete at the age of 38. If you could imagine that, only two years of becoming a full-time athlete dedicated to a sport, this man leaves not only one, but two incredible careers to follow a passion, a dream, that many can only think would be an absolute uh, story that only Disney itself could show. This man made it reality. In it, we learn so much about human spirit and the power of belief and support and all around inspiration to become that who you know you are and want to become. Well, in that movie, not only are there some incredible lines to live by, but there's a great word that is put together by one of the lead characters. And, and this character uh, is the one and only Rod Tidwell, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. And one of the words that he has created in the movie is the word Quan. Quan encapsulates that of, of being Mr. Everything being the ambassador of cool, the ambassador of making things happen, or at least that's how I understand it. Benjamin Alexander's word is fearless, but not only fearless like we know it, what that word means, but it's to understand the acronym of fear. An acronym described for the word fear has been that of false experiences appearing real. 
Benji is the ambassador of that fear acronym. He is a person that lives to prove people's fears wrong. He's a person who overcomes obstacles simply by saying, let's try. He incorporates so much of the human spirit that many would call simple resiliency and simple inspiration put together. It, it, to put it quite frankly, if inspiration and resiliency had a kid, <laughs> they would be Benji. So I, I can only tell you this. His story is one that I'm so excited to share with you all. He's a person that not only shows that, that much of what we fear in life is simply the worry of not being able to follow through or not having what it takes to make it happen. He's a person that overcame numerous, numerous obstacles in his life. And now his goal is to bring something that he's found later in life to many children who might not be able to economically afford to do what he did. More specifically, he is working with his incredible sponsor, Atomic, to bring cross-country skiing to children in Jamaica and around the world that might not ever be able to afford the costs and, and the other economic rigors that come with skiing or winter sports. I have a passion personally for being able to bring the same kind of experiences that transformed my life to those young kids who might not have the opportunity to do such simply because their parents are unable to afford certain sports. This gentleman is not only trying to transform people through inspiration, but he's also trying to transform the lives of many young children ahead, showing them that no matter where they're from, no matter where they live, and no matter how much they can afford to participate, finances should not be what hold kids back from achieving their dreams or realizing their true potential. Benjamin Alexander is the ambassador of Quan when it comes to being fearless. And with the help of Atomic and hopefully more sponsors, he'll be able to spread his fearless motto, credo, and just way of life to numerous young individuals around the world so that they too can experience even a portion of the amazing, amazing accomplishments and dreams that he has been able to find within himself and in the sport of alpine skiing. I'm honored and excited to share with you my guest, the one and only DJ, now turned alpine skier, now turned Olympic athlete, Benjamin Alexander. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. All right, everybody. I've got an incredibly, incredibly good-looking guest with me today. Um, he's a type of guy that is so good looking that I just want to do this from my closet. I have someone who is an incredible athlete in so many different ways, and it's going to be really, really difficult for me to stay on track so that I can stay in unison with a lot of things that we talk about. I've got a guy who is Jamaica's first Olympic skier in Winter Olympics. 
I've got a guy who not only can chop it up in the boardroom with his incredible finance degree, but I also have a guy who can lay it down like with the beats and then take it to, oh, I don't know, maybe the scariest sport on the planet where he's going Mach 5 as he does the giant slalom in the Winter Olympics. I love for him to have a business card that I can show off to all my friends and say, this is a friend of mine. Today, I have the one and only Mr. Benjamin Alexander. Benji, thank you so much again for, for making time to talk with me, buddy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for that intro. I, I thought at first I thought you were going to introduce Derek Zoolander, but you, know, you, you got around to me. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! So, so in, in the few chances that we've had to chat with each other, I feel like a jerk in that I've never asked you what is your connection to to Jamaica. Like, who 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 is from that background? So I'm, right, I'm, right. So my father, my father was born in Jamaica. Um, and then like, and like lots of us, uh, he, or lots of people have parents like I do, he, he moved to England in 1961 when he was five years old, part of the Windrush generation. And there are 1 million people, almost 1 million people in England that identify as being of Jamaican descent. You are in Toronto, which is one of the kind of like the epicenters for Jamaica inside of Canada and between Canada, the UK and the United States. There are 2 million people who identify as Jamaican, and there's only 3 million people on the island. So 40% of us live between the U.S., Canada, and the United Kingdom. That is nuts. That, that is nuts. So, like, I actually heard something, like, like from, from a Canadian's perspective, that, that here in San Diego, uh, where, I, where I am, um, just north of me in L.A., is technically the second most populated city for Canadians in North America. Uh, How weird is that. that, right? So yeah, more, more, yeah, more of my guys are, are, are coming south to get away from the snow. Um, I, okay, so I, I got to ask the basic questions for anyone who doesn't know your story, mm -hmm. okay? Like you, you actually kind of, when I did a little bit of research on you, you kind of touched my heart because um, something you don't know that I'm going to share with you and, I think oddly enough, some of my friends might find out when they hear about this is that in my second year of college um, and, and completely by fluke uh, because of sports, uh, I was diagnosed with a learning disability hmm. and, and I had no idea. And I, I come from that Euro family where you fix that by two shots in the head and sit at the front of the classroom. Right. Um, but your story is, is kind of similar, I think, to mine in some way and that you had problems as a kid in school. And, 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 and some thought you, you were a hellraiser, but you're just a genius and an artist trying to get out. So, so what, what was your story? Uh, hellraiser, absolutely. My parents later found out that I was hyperactive as a result of eating certain additives that were in lots of the candy and lots of the sweetened food, E101, E102, E112, all of those additives. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate. Uh, I come from a working class background. My father drove a bus for the majority of his career, if not a delivery driver. My mother similarly worked in uh, you know, shops or she was a delivery driver. Um, they met in a factory in their late teenage years and just had a very kind of humble blue collar upbringing. As a kid going to state school, I was the number one troublemaker in the class, in the school. I think there wasn't a kid in my class that I hadn't bit or punched by the time I was like five or six years old. And I got lucky because as you said, it could have just been uh, a case of disciplining me and just continuing to 
push against that trend of my rebelliousness. Uh, and what actually happened is they decided that maybe I was just bored in class and causing hassle as a result of my boredom and just started to really push me to my limits academically, particularly with like STEM subjects. Um, at the age of 11, I was no, noticed as being quite smart and had a government funded place to go to a private school. Um, and that just really kept me on the straight and narrow. So I feel very fortunate for that moment, almost like sliding doors. Had I had not gone to that private school, had it not been discovered as being a little bit smart by uh, some of my teachers in my formative years, then maybe I would have just been selling drugs or stealing cars or still in my small little hometown um, that I tried my hardest to get away from. So yeah, some similarities there. Isn't it scary, like when you hear stories like this, um, how, how there's one common denominator and it's someone found me, mm-hmm. someone found me, right? If it wasn't for blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I know for a fact, if it wasn't for like a real fluke scenario, I don't even think I would have gotten into the world of psychology. Um, and I'll tell you a, a long story in two seconds. Um, I got into academic problems and my, my second year of uh, school where I had I was taking the wrong classes and basically these ladies that were helping us uh, as as hockey players at our school said you're basically on the path to graduate with your children so um, you need to take these certain classes to graduate on time and um, I found myself having to go to a psychology class which was the only one that would take care of a couple of things at once and um, there was only one class that would fit in the schedule I showed up to the class four weeks in a row and there were no chairs. And I sat on the ground, on the concrete. On the fourth week, the fourth week I get in and it's a movie day. And I don't even know who the teacher, the the professor is. The first day there was a movie. The second uh, week there was a guest speaker. The third week I showed up late and they were doing some sort of presentation, like an act of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I, I never had seen the professor. So all of a sudden I'm in uh, this, this class and there's one chair left at the back of the room. I get in and I take it and I sit down and, and the person sitting beside me just hops in and she had her purse and her jacket there. It was really kind of a cold day. And she looks at me and she goes, oh, you got a chair today. And I'm like, yeah. And so I said, what's the deal? Like, like this place is packed and she starts asking me questions, right? And, and the person's like really young and, and, and kind of hip and cool or whatever. And I tell her my story, I really need this class or I'm, I'm screwed, right? And she says to me, well, you know what you should do? You should actually go to see the professor. These are her office hours. And just so you know, she's really into hockey and she's really into school sports. So be that as it may, figure it out. Well, the next morning I run to see our trainer. I pick up some swag, some tickets, and I go to this office to beg and plead with this person who I haven't met. Please let me into your class. Knock at the door. Who is it? I say my name. Come in. I walk in, and the professor's got the desk, her, her desk facing outward, but she's looking out the window, and all I see is the back of her chair. She says, how can I help you? And I said, um, um, and I just start stuttering. And she's like, please, I, I've got I've got a phone call. I got to get on. Please tell me what you need. And I'm like, uh, my, 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 my name is Jason. And, and I, I, I need to get in your class. And, 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 and oh, I've got, I've got hockey gifts to give you. And all of a sudden she starts laughing and she spins around. And it was the girl that was sitting beside me the day before in class. <laughs> I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? This person was like my mentor for classes. 
for the next two years um and and kind of was like my if she didn't give a hoot i i wouldn't be here talking to you today right so right the kindness of one person right how can change your life around you know absolutely so 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 let me ask you this here you've you've got a really really crazy life and and you start taking these incredible classes you're, you're doing finance from finance you go into becoming a dj well tell me your parents didn't lose it right like i know <laughs> we have different descents right but your, your parents must have lost it right so I've been really fortunate that since a really young age, probably around about 16, I've, I've chosen what I've wanted to do. Um, I chose to leave that private school at the age of 16 and return back into state schooling for 16 through 18, just because I didn't appreciate the amount of discipline that was being kind of levied on me at that private school. And my parents allowed me to do that. Uh, I, still got the, I still got good enough grades to go to some of the world's best universities. And so they've always just kind of allowed me to do the thing that I wanted to do and they've been very hands-off with that so I was actually a DJ before I got into finance I picked up uh, a pair of turntables at the age of 17 in the year 2000 and um, did pretty well with that I got to DJ around the country had a, a radio show on a pirate radio station um, but this was during trying to be a good studious kid in the in the daytime studying electrical and electronic engineering and so at some point I gave that up um, in the in the middle of all this, I moved to Asia. So right after graduating from university, I had about, I don't know, three days after my final exam, I had a one-way ticket to Asia and just had a, an idea in my head that I'd find a better life out there and ended up spending about 10 years of my life out there. Worked in a finance role, as, uh, as you said, worked between private equity and wealth management. And it was while living in Hong Kong, working in wealth management, that my pastime of being a DJ kind of picked itself up again. And at some point I was making a bit of cash DJing at some of the best venues in, in the country and just decided what would happen if I quit the day job and went full time with my creative pursuits and uh, my musical aspirations and ended up spending about 10 years on the road as an international DJ, performed across five continents, over 30 countries, um, have been a performer at Burning Man for the last decade or so. And, and now still on the board of one of the biggest uh, camps that, uh, that is out there. I like, okay, right there, excuse the pun, you should be dropping the mic and calling it, it is what it is, right? Like, what an incredible balance between, you know, say intellect and creativity, like, oh my God. Like, I, I saw some documentary about a year ago with some guy who's a, I think he's a super duper intellect uh, slash uh, leader, I want to say at Merrill Lynch and for fun, he DJs at this massive nightclub in Vegas. It's like, when you see this guy, like <laughs> at best, he should be the Sears catalog model for everything our fathers wear. Right. right. <laughs> and now he's, he's, he's grooving. Right. And, and we're talking laser light show, glow sticks and foam. Like this doesn't make any sense. Right. I think you're talking about David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs. Yes. I knew I wasn't wrong. wrong. Yes. Okay. So do you know him? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> he's just in a very different world as it pertains to like music and, and kind of the niches that we both sit, sit in. Oh man. Is that incredible to just to, I, I just think it would be so amazing to be in a room with, with, with the two of you and, and just like 
the yin and yang of, of life, like it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. Okay. So, so now, now, okay. You're on a DJ gig. It's 2015. I know I'm going ADD on you right now, but thank God you are too. So we were on the same planet. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Please, please just walk me through this. You're in Whistler. You're doing an incredible DJ gig and, and you've got friends or family that buddies that are taking you to experience all the cool winter effects and what's going on there and somehow like like skiing comes to you like like how does this how does this happen yeah it's a little difficult to follow so i was uh invited to a heli ski lodge for christmas of 2015 in the same uh, province as uh as whistler but a little further interior actually in a place called revelstoke where i am now and so we flew subwoofers, big speakers, all of the turntables and DJs equipment that you would need to throw a party to this lodge because you can only access it in the winter by helicopter. And there were 30 friends, predominantly those of my Burning Man kind of cohort and family um, that were out there, majority of which were skiing, at least two thirds of the, the kind of attendees were skiing. And the rest of us were just the house cats, making sure that the jacuzzi was hot, the beer was cold, and maybe watching some cheesy ski movies from the 80s while the guys were out skiing. On one of the days, they invited us up in the helicopter to the top of the mountain to meet them for lunch. And at the end of lunch, seeing my friends click into their skis and strap into their snowboards and just slide off the top of that ridgeline was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Now, bearing in mind, I grew up in, in kind of South England, uh, where we get less than 10 centimeters of snow every three years. So to wake up and to go up to the top of the mountain, first of all, jumping in and out of a helicopter is super cool. But to go into this mountainous terrain, which is completely foreign for me, um, and to see this, this amount of snow, which is also incredibly foreign for me, and then to see my friends using it as their adventure playground with not another soul around for tens, if not 50 or 100 miles. I just thought this was the coolest thing. And I set my intention to become a skier so that I could ski with my friends. And my first lesson was a couple of months later in Whistler. Uh, I was flown to Whistler to perform at a swingers party, part of the perks of being a DJ, I guess, um, and had my first lesson. So actually, yesterday was my seven. Yesterday was my seven-year anniversary of that first lesson in Whistler. Oh now, my intention was only to become good enough to be able to heli ski with my friends. And on my ninth day of skiing, Christmas of 2017, I attempted heli skiing, and I, I use the word attempted because it didn't go so well. Yeah. But I got back out there with with my skis and and gave it a shot. And it wasn't until the beginning of 2018 that I came to Revelstoke again, there's a lot circling around this little town here, um, that I had the opportunity to ski with a big group of friends. And I really understood how joyous the sport of skiing is, the aspect of it being team human against the mountain. Everyone fights against the mountain throughout the course of the day and has a lot of fun playing with gravity, sliding down frozen water. And then at the end of the day, you just kind of share the stories over a beer. And I really fell in love with the the whole concept of skiing as a sport and became fanatical and have been fanatical ever since. I, I just like it, you're a freak of nature. You, you, you know this, right? And, and, and listen, as we're getting to know each other, you know, I mean, this with love in my heart. Yeah. I mean, for you to do what you did, like, like it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, 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 Oh, Oh my God. And, and he, here's what I was thinking about last night, kind of like put in my head, you know, what today was going to be like to, us chatting i <laughs> you might be the only person that i've ever had the chance to meet that's going to have this experience uh, in my brain 
I, I have this theory that when our day comes and we go to wherever we go, all right, there's going to be a person there that says, hey, do you want to know? And that person is going to say, this is how it could have gone. Had you walked across the dance floor and asked him or her, right, right. Could have gone. had you gone to this school, this is how it could have gone. And here are all the things you could have done. I was thinking of you last night before <laughs> I shut her down, and this guy's going to look and go, fuck, you did it. Where'd it go? Isn't that the goal of life, though? It doesn't Not to have regrets, sense. just to try to. But, but you know, God bless you for saying that, right? Because the, the reality of, of it is, um, again, in, in my little brain with the million theories I have of life, the only way that you can have, I think, a, a content life is to try and get rid of as many of those what ifs as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And and God bless you, buddy. You, you, you've done some amazing crossing offs so far. Like, it, it, it's just, wow. It's just, wow. So, okay, so, so. To keep this train going forward, it's like, what, 2019, you meet an incredibly great person who becomes your mentor. And I think that that's a gentleman by the name of Gordon Gray, right? Who, right. who knows the little ins and outs, the techniques, as I, I, I hear him referred to as, as a technique coach. Who Does he take you under his wing? Does, does he say, oh, kid, you can do this? Like, like who, who is this guy to you? Like, right. does he sort of your impromptu go-to coach kind of? Yeah, so let's just fill in the gaps because uh, we've made a couple of like leaps there and you and I know exactly what we're talking about, but maybe the listeners don't. Please, please. So, so in 2018 at this event, as I said, where I had the opportunity to fall in love with skiing, because of my Jamaican descent, people would keep bringing up the movie Cool Runnings. Anyone who's older than 30 years old knows about this movie. Oh um, and this was obviously about the pursuits of the Jamaican boxer team in 1988, Jamaica's first ever outing at the Winter Olympics. They crashed, but they became folklore and, and, and you know, cold heroes. And so a Disney movie was made, out, made about them, which was one of John Candy's last movies that he made. So as I said, being of Jamaican descent, being out there on a mountain in Canada, people kept saying to me, you should go to the Olympics. And so right after that event was the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics in, in Korea. And I was headed back to Asia anyway. And so I went to, to the Olympics to experience the Olympics for the first time, firsthand, and had a fantastic time, fell in love with the Olympic spirit, but was struck by the fact that there were only three athletes representing my father's nation of Jamaica, compared with the powerhouse that we have in the Summer Games. And something was just missing there for me. And so the idea of potentially being an athlete and potentially being a representative of Jamaica at the Winter Games started around about there, the beginning of 2018. End of 2018, I retired from DJing. I decided I wanted to try other things in life. And so I moved to Revelstoke just for a month at the beginning of 2019 to see whether or not I had the chops to be a ski racer. And the first thing is an ability to ski, which I really didn't have at that time, shall we say. Um, within a few days of getting to Revelstoke in 2019, I had the opportunity to ski with Gordon Gray, the guy you just mentioned. Now, Gordon was a former Europa Cup level skier for the United States. For those that are not familiar with ski racing, that means that at, in his heyday, he was in the top 10 or top 20 in the country um, of the United States, which is, you know, is a big deal. And this was my first time ever having the opportunity to interact with someone who had achieved 
a lot in the world of ski racing. And so I went straight up to him. I'd never met him before. He was a friend of a friend at this event and said, Gordon, I have this crazy idea of potentially going to the Winter Olympics for Jamaica in skiing. I have no idea what that entails or what that means or even what the disciplines are or any of these words mean. He said, okay, all right, well, I've just met you. I've never seen you ski. How about we go out there and I'll give you my opinion. So we ski together for the morning and at lunchtime, he pulls me aside. He's very frank with me. He says, Benji, I'll tell you what, you have the worst skiing technique I have ever seen. It is horrendous. He says, but, you know, this is a very technical sport. You told me that you've only skied for 20, 22 days, something like that, and you've only had two lessons. Of course you're horrendous because you don't learn this by osmosis. You can't figure it out yourself. It requires a lot of training and tuition. And he takes a moment to pause and he says, you know, I've been skiing my entire life. I've skied at the highest level, represented the United States. What I can't figure out is how the hell you're keeping up with me. You are absolutely fearless, crazy, or some mixture of the two. And he, and he says, he kind of like ponders to himself. He's like, I think you can do this. Being fearless means that we can teach you the technique. If you are afraid, then it doesn't matter how good your technique is. You're just never going to be able to push it to the limit. You're never going to be a successful ski racer. And so it was Gordon and this chance meeting with him. You know, we're talking about chance interactions with people in our lives that have these positive impacts that have like long lasting effects. Gordon was the guy that then went away, um, went to assess the rules and understand the rules and kind of distilled them into a way that a complete Luddite in the world of skiing could understand them which is what I was in at that, the position I was in at that moment. And so Gordon kind of set the framework for this is the discipline you should chase. This is what you need to do. This is how much work it's going to take. Well, it's all up to you now. Go do it. So yeah, that, that was Gordon in my life. Oh my God. Like, I mean, wow. When, when, when you have someone of that nature who, who you just know oozes like such respect in their sport, yeah, who looks at you and, and it's got no skin in the game. Right says to you hey like this is not a dumb and dumber scenario you've got a chance your heart must just like drop right like your, your stomach must just go oh my god i'm i'm in i'm going yeah. to put me in so <laughs> so what happens then like like well, it's validation right having right. someone of that caliber saying i think you've got a shot here it it, it takes the whole pipe dream and it sets it on a, on a train track. And it's like, now it's up to you to, to work hard and get down that track and push as hard as you can. It, it, it brings it into uh, or under a lens of reality, knowing that this is achievable. Because there are some things in life that are really, really hard and pretty much you might as well put them in the impossible bucket, right? Maybe you started too late or maybe you're just, you don't have that flexibility or, or you know, there are many things that are really, really hard to do, right? Um, and so having the validation from someone who had been there, someone that had done it himself and, and bought the t-shirt many times over, having that validation and having him say, like, go do it, let's get started. And so from that moment, I, you know, I spent that entire month skiing in Revelstoke. This was the first time I'd ever spent more than a week in the mountains. Um, lots of interesting accolades. I ski pretty much every day. I ski 30, 39 days out of the 41 that I was there. At some point, you have to take some breaks. But what's really interesting is two things. First of all, during the course of those 39 days of skiing, I skied 1.7 million vertical feet, which doesn't mean much to anyone who doesn't ski. But you know, if you go out there on an average day with your family, you might get 10,000 vertical feet of skiing. I skied this morning and got 20,000 vertical feet. But if you sum up how long it takes to get to 1.7 million vertical feet, if you're skiing for easy math, 10,000 feet a day, 
that's 170 days. If you get out and you ski a week a year, how, long, how many sevens does it take to get to 170, right? That's what, 25 years of skiing that I managed to amass over the course of 39 days. And so I just became incredibly fanatical about it. I was always out there on my skis. I was always pursuing more speed, always trying to understand the equipment. Um, and that was my way of saying, okay, I think I have a chance at this. Someone has said something to me, but now I need to put the work and the effort in to see whether or not I have the, 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 you know, the, the courage and the grit to be able to push through. Buddy, I, I got I got to tell you when when you say that, and I, I know that you, you're you're the guy that I would have tried to cheat off of in math class because you're the stat <laughs> guy, um, and I, and I love that you you bring that in because that that's so you. Um, but but I got to tell you, right? This this is the the cheeseball Italian, right? He says to you, Mister Gray, he says to you, you've got this ability to do it. You're fearless. You can do yeah. this. To me, this is like when we hear that dung in every Rocky movie. Like, yeah. it's so appropriate you're wearing a gray tracksuit right now because we're yeah. about to chase a chicken. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. th th this is this is what would go in my mind. Like, it's on. Like, we're, 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 we're dancing. We're doing this, right? Oh, my God. Like, and then to, to hear you now use the analytics to explain everything that you put into it in such a short frame of time the, the the next analogy that comes to my mind is that of like the, the Malcolm Gladwell, right? The, right, the 10,000 10, hours. hours, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. it, it, this is what you're doing, is yeah. what it, it sounds like to me, right? But I got to ask you this, right? Like, like to, to, to stay on track somewhat, what's the motivation? Like, like what, so, what is the motivation for you with this? Yeah, that's a great question. So going back to what you said about when you go somewhere or you meet the man upstairs or, or, or whatever your religion or faith or denomination, uh, however they explain that, I've always felt that a life well lived is having many, many chapters that are not necessarily correlated to each other, but each of them bring enjoyment to you. And just being really focused on those things and, and having some achievements with inside of them. I've also found in life that I'm at my happiest when I'm learning something. And when I'm like at the bottom of a mountain trying to climb it, and I mean this as a, as a metaphor as well as kind of, a, you know, in actuality, but when I'm learning something and I'm climbing that mountain and I'm getting better at something and I'm feeling those improvements, that's when I'm happiest at, in life. And that could be something as, as technical as ski racing, or it could be my other current obsession, which is backgammon and the strategy and the analysis of this, the world's oldest game. It doesn't really matter whether it's something physical, whether it's languages, whether it's uh, a STEM subject, but just the feeling of improving at something is very, very addicting to me. And so this feeling of, of catching up with my peer group of people or friends who have been skiing their entire lives. And here I am two years, three years into the game and skiing faster than, than them and not necessarily better than them, but skiing faster than them. This was just like really, really appealing to me to see how far I could take it. Um, with, the, with the opportunity, you know, the carrot at the end of the stick, with this opportunity of potentially being able to be an Olympian and to be able to follow in the footsteps of that 1988 bobsled team made this pursuit even more cooler, pardon the pun, um, even more cooler in my mind and something that I was really excited to, to give a shot. So, so in keeping with that cooler little metaphor there, yeah. we've got to draw it right into our, our friend with cool run-ins here. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Stokes, Dudley mm -hmm. Stokes. So this is a gentleman who was one of the men in the bobsled. 
how does he end up helping and guiding you through all of this? What, what, what does he end up doing? Yeah, so Dudley was the pilot of the 1988, game, uh, 1988 Jamaica bobsled team. Uh, mm -hmm. He went to four Olympics as a competitor and two more as a coach. Um, he was formerly a helicopter pilot in the army, and that's why he was selected to be the pilot of this bobsled team because of the hand-eye coordination skills mm -hmm. required. Wow. Dudley, during the pandemic, was actually doing a... Um, uh, an explanation, a behind-the-scenes explanation of what was going on in the movie Cool Runnings. So this was being broadcast live on YouTube, and I'd heard about this a month before, and I was—I just thought this was my opportunity to reach out and connect to this guy. And so I kind of pestered him on YouTube, and eventually caught his attention and told him about my pursuits of going to the Olympics. And having spoken to Dudley, Dudley is the type of character that has no time of day for. Olympic tourism, as he calls it, people that have just had this idea that they wanted to go to the Olympics all, all of their life. Um, but after getting on the phone, which was supposed to be a quick 15 minute phone call, uh, Dudley and I spoke for the better part of two hours. And at the end of the call, he was like, you know, I really, enjoy, really enjoyed listening to your plan. I really like the way that you've thought through this. And I really appreciate your way of kind of tackling this problem and your realism behind this whole project. Um, and I'd like to play a more of an active role in this. Maybe we set up a, a weekly or at least a monthly call where I can kind of be involved and to guide you with any of the expertise that I've picked up along the way. And so, yeah, Dudley and I have spent over 100, if not 200 hours on the phone in these last, in these last two years since we first connected. Um, and it's been great to have him on my side. So it's amazing. Uh, again, your your ability to to reach out and connect with people, and and again, it's it's part of the gift that you have with, with having such an incredible personality. Like you, you can make friends at a funeral, um, but I, I, not everybody has that. But but the ability for you to not only connect with people in a personal level, but also as a serious level as an athlete, because you, you're not talking to schmucks here. You're not talking yeah. to some guys you know, who, who are, are, are rec level people. These are people who are world-class athletes. Yeah. And not only are you saying, please give me a chance, but let me show you what I'm all about. And they dive in and they go, kid, you've got this. We've got you. Have you always been like this? Like, 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 cause again, right. Right. Not, not, not to, to, to blow smoke up your skirt too much here, but I mean, your diversity of talents is massive, but your ability to be so good at them at the same time is huge. But then to get people to believe in you and back yeah. you. Like, have you always had this? So a big, a big thing is trying to understand the mentality of the person that you're speaking to. Um, and so from a, a sales point of view, let's say you're picking up the phone, cold calling into a company, you're trying to get someone to buy your product, whatever it is. You know, there are many sales books that are out there that will teach you to understand what those person's levers are. What are the things that motivate that person? And if you can in some way support those levers or provide something that is supportive or enticing to that person, then you're more likely to get a yes. Maybe you just need to encourage the person that is around that person that helps them make the decisions. Maybe you need to encourage their boss to help that person make the decision. And what, what I found in life is that sometimes you have to accept no from the person directly, but then find a way to apply leverage and pressure onto that person by the people that are, you know, by virtue of the people that are in their circle. And this only really works if you're serious about the thing. I knew that I was hell bent on 
going to the Olympics and succeeding at this mission because I had made my intentions clear to my friend group and my you know extended social circles that I was giving up DJing in, in a bid to become an Olympian. And if you are so passionate and so you know you believe so strongly in this thing that you are chasing, then really people feel that, and people can sniff a disingenuous request for help because. If it's disingenuous, perhaps there was never really the motivation to follow this thing through. And I'm now sitting on the other side of this equation where I'm mentoring and helping 10 athletes to potentially fight for the two slots that Jamaica will have in 2026. And there is a very clear delineation between those that have reached out because they saw that I was on TV and they thought that it was a cool idea. And those that are like, okay, that's a cool idea. I'm going to get going and, and get, get started. Um, and the people from the, the first group, have reached out to me and nothing has happened. And the people from the second group have listened to my advice and have gone out and bought the equipment and started training. Um, and so I always fall into that second group if I'm reaching out for advice or if I'm reaching out for support. And I believe that humans are generally kind. Mm -hmm. And if I were to pick up the phone to you out of the blue and I had a request about something that you had some expertise in, if you had five minutes in your day or 10 minutes in your day, and I presented it in a way to you that you could just get, impart your wisdom and knowledge to me without it being any skin off your nose, you would do that. You would give me those 10 minutes of the day. But as the, as the person making that request and the person asking, you have to do all the work for the other person. You can't come to them half-baked because they feel it and they know that you're not serious. So I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but oh, it, it's, 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 it's just kind of like a good way of trying to get people to do things for you because you've set it up in a way where it's really easy for them to do it. Well, I, what you're seeing in... in... In, in, in a much more colorful and artistic way is, is you're, you're basically saying if the key to sales is being able to convey to someone else how much you believe in the product. Yeah. Right. And some of the top, top salespeople that I've ever met in any field will say the same thing. If I don't believe it and I can't do it. Exactly. And, and if you're able to convey that with, with passion and, and with intellect, I think you, you, you've got your home run right there. Yeah. I just got to wonder though, right? Like, I, I just got to wonder, not knowing anything about your friend base, not knowing anything about family. Um, sometimes I, I, I make the, the bad assumption that everyone has a crazy family like the one I have. Um, that that you got to have a couple people in your life that are thinking, what the hell's he doing? What the hell's he doing, right? And, and well, tell, tell us about that, because I'm sure you've got at least one guy, right, or, or one relative. I got about 103. Spinning. <laughs> and it's funny, in my world, when things do work out, it's amazing because they want to sell T-shirts telling everybody that they supported me the whole way. Yeah. So, yeah. What, what was it like for you? Well, look, I think at some point you have a track record of proving yourself um, in terms of undertaking a crazy audacious task and pulling it off and coming out smelling better on the other side. And so I started this, you know, going back to 17 years ago when I left England with no plan, nothing but a feeling and a desire to try and live somewhere else. And literally I had 250 pounds in my bank account after I bought my one-way ticket and I made it work. And this crazy plan of living on the other side of the planet materialized into something really special. And the way that I tend to justify these, these crazy endeavors is I look at the downside and I look at the risk. 
And for me, the risk is always, while you fail, it doesn't matter. You get back up and you do something else. The bigger risk is never having taken that shot, right? Wayne Gretzky's statement that uh, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So moving to Asia for me was about taking that shot. And I knew that if it didn't work, I could find some way to get some money and uh, get a return ticket to England and go back to my parents and try something else crazy. The exact same thing happened when I left finance. I had a steady job with, with a great income. And I threw that away to try and become a DJ full time. And I had some really tough times, you know, as, as all aspiring creatives do at the start, there were moments where I was putting coins together to buy the sub of the day because it was the, the cheapest and most filling thing that I could, could afford so that I could continue with my music pursuits. And eventually that came true. And when you make that leap of faith from your office job to something creative, your brains don't disappear. Not immediately. Over decades, they start to disintegrate. But over the course of months or a couple of years, if the, if the DJing didn't work and it wasn't fulfilling me, then I could have returned to a desk job, the very same desk that I left, um, or another job. And I've always felt that you're never really leaving anything behind, but what you are leaving behind is the opportunity if you don't take that shot. Um, and so there are always naysayers. And the beautiful thing is when you succeed, there are the people that pretend that they backed you all the way along, which you just mentioned. But the beautiful thing is actually the people who say, you know what, I didn't think you were going to do it but I'm damn proud of you and I'm happy to have been a part of it. And I love that. I love proving people wrong. It's one of my, one of my favorite things to do ever is just to, to have people doubt you and then to, to come out the cropper on the other side as the, as the, as the victor. Yeah. God, you're, you're, you're living, you're living the t-shirt that needs to be made that says fearless. You're living it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. God bless you. You're saying so many things that I, I'm internalizing myself when, when I left Canada years ago to come to school. And and I mean, hell, I think you you left England with, with more money than I did uh, from Canada to start down here. And um, my partner, uh, with, with tell you a stupid story, you talk about pulling quarters together to, to make meals happen. We moved down to California, Peter and I, um, my, my co-founding partner with Headset, and um, I remember one night we were coming home after after school and, and I said, buddy, I, I don't know how I'm going to make this right. Like like financially wise, we were, we yeah. were sharing a one bedroom apartment. We were sharing a car from like 1984 that got stolen on us twice. And, and we were struggling to make rent and plus keep up with our education. And, and he's like, hey, we're going to make this. And, and you know why? We're going to save money on food. I'm like, what? And, and sure enough, as time went on, um, we found this this little $1 menu restaurant out here. And back in Canada, they didn't have dollar menus back then. And, and we knew we had a problem when one night we came through the drive-thru at 1030 and they'd shut down and they said, sorry, we're closed. And he responded, oh, come on. And they said, Peter, is that you? <laughs> come on. <laughs> like, you find a way. Like, little, little miracles happen right yeah. miracles happen along the way that you can't tell people about like like you you you, right. you can't. and if you haven't done that or, or been that poor in that moment it, this would not make any sense to you yeah right? yeah but there, there's one thing to be told fearless it's another thing to to live it so yeah sure. so i gotta ask you this okay so now now if I, I i'm swaying the tide here um you're gonna do downhill skiing at a world world-class level are, are you not freaking out about the speed are you not freaking out about 
you're going Mach five, <laughs> right? You're you're so so to educate people and 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 me specifically, how fast are you going down that hill? So, for my discipline, which is giant slalom, maybe we're getting up to fifty miles an hour in that particular race. Um, today, when I'm just kind of messing around on the hill, I'm hitting 65, 70 miles an hour, just kind of having fun. Um, I loved speed from the get-go. And there were just, there were other disciplines that I could have chosen that were shorter, smaller, far, not as fast, maybe a little bit safer, but that's not where my excitement laid. If I was gonna change and do this thing just for the sake of being an Olympian, then it, I would have lost the, the heart and the soul and the spirit behind why I wanted to ski. The reason I wanted to ski is because I love to go fast. And the, the, the biggest enjoyment I got from skiing was that speed. And so no, by the time you get into a course, again, that fearlessness kicks in. There, there wasn't any fear. There were a few courses that I got into that are challenging because they're steep, fast, and you have to make the gates, which is what makes them complicated, not the speed. Um, I, you know, nearly every single one of those courses, if not every single one of those courses, as soon as you get into the course, as soon as you make that first turn, the fear is, is gone. The fear is only there for that very first moment before you're about to start. And then as soon as you start sliding, it's like, great, we got this, let's go. You, you know what I love about you? I love how you just like so passively just go by, oh, 40, 65 miles an hour, just 40, <laughs> it's not right. Give me a break, right? Give me a break. And you know what? If you're below the age of 20, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. As soon as you get to 25 and above, you're going, oh, shit. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I'm going to leave a mark if I hit, if I hit the ground. Yeah. So now I got to know this. Um, you can't just fill out a ballot and say, hey, I've got descendants, uh, yeah. citizenship. You got to go qualify for this. Right. Absolutely. You've got to go qualify for this. So like, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is you got to get into events. How, how, how the hell did you get into events to even qualify? Yeah. So first of all, you kind of have to understand how the whole system works. And that was uh, you know, a lot of learning for me, uh, assisted by Gordon Gray and, and, and many people uh, on the internet, including Mike Schneider, who wrote me a dissertation on things that I should be looking at. Just some random guy I met on Reddit who I still speak to to this day um, after, you know, randomly asking a reddit forum for some advice three years ago um you have to qualify so yes you can't just show up with a jamaican passport and say hi i'm the only jamaican alpine ski racer right now i'll take that one spot there is a minimum threshold for qualification which is set there for safety as you said we're going at these speeds on our skis our skis are as sharp as samurai swords, they will slice you open. And I've sliced my hands open many times on these skis. And so there's a certain minimum threshold of uh, capability um, and for safety. And so you have to get into races. So what was crazy about my whole journey is I moved to the mountains at the end of 2019 and had my first race in January of 2020 had my third race meet or my sixth race, you have two races at each meet typically, basically two days before the world shut down. And if I look back at that project of going from zero to Olympian and needing to get to lots of races and needing to qualify 
of those 24 months, 17 of them, I had no access to competition, either through cancellation or through closed borders. Um, so it was a real uphill struggle to, to make this thing work. And there were many moments along the path where I was just feeling like the opportunity was slipping through my fingers, not through my fault, but just through not being able to either get to mountains to train or to get to competitions to, to compete because of the pandemic. So it was a, it was a tough road. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. I, I, can't, I, I can't even imagine. And, and, you know, not even being able to, to have a clue of, of how you do what you do at that level. I, I'm curious to even know, how does slalom get to, to the whole effect? Because for a layperson, as, as I admittedly am, you've got a world-class person saying the technique sucks yeah but then here you are slalom where this is not just a straight shot down hold on pray to god and do the rules you want to do this yeah you're bobbing and weaving so not only are you trying to get skills up but you're adding more difficulty to what you're doing yeah like, 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 is, is there not an easy button for you like 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 <laughs> <laughs> something maybe, maybe. so how are, you, how are you getting all that in to be able to even do what you're doing like it just the story just gets even more and more oh but let me tell you one more thing along the way. right yeah so there, there are many of those wait bugs um so giant star is just and that was chosen very speed events as they're called, which are downhill and super tube, have a much stricter threshold of qualification and criteria for qualification for safety reasons. And so we ruled those out because in the short two hours, two years that we had to be able to qualify to get to that level would be near on impossible uh, for many other reasons other than the pandemic as well. Um, the choice of giant slalom versus slalom was actually just because it, it was a faster event and I enjoyed the speed and that was what I wanted to be training. That's how we, that's how we ended up there. So, you know, you, you, you said something a little bit earlier that, that was very, very insightful um, because anyone that listens to this and, 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 and reads up on your story and, and spends two seconds looking into you um, can see the diversity of talent that you have and, and, you definitely have the ability to to sell ice to Eskimos. That's that's good. <laughs> um, but you do all of this without a coach. Yeah, you got to be kidding me, man! Like, like, don't tell me there's a book out there. <laughs> you tell me you did this on YouTube. I I I I, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to take up an Olympic sport tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of beg borrowing and stealing of a yeah. dog. I would constantly be peppering all of the professionals in my field and asking them questions. And in hindsight, looking back at some of those questions, they seem relatively easy. But quite often when you're coming into a new world with its own lingo, uh, its own nomenclature, it's really difficult to make head nor heads or tails of, of any of the documentation because it's just so densely packed with insider knowledge and inside expertise 
um, that looking at it from the outside in is often really, really opaque and challenging. But as I said, I'm not afraid to pick up the phone. I'm not afraid to cold call or reach out to people um, and, and find uh, those people that can help me. So I had many coaches along the way, but typically what would happen if you were trying to launch an Olympic bid like this, you would have a coach that was putting together all of your equipment strategy, putting together all of your travel and training strategy, putting together the strategy of which, which of the races uh, he thinks would be most fruitful for your skill set. Um, and I did all of that myself. I had a coach that worked with me in one location for four days. I had a coach that would work with me over here for 10 days. I had a coach that would work with me over here for three weeks. You know, it was kind of this piecemeal of putting everything together. And at one point I was getting very frustrated with this whole process. And this is where mentors are really helpful. And I spoke to Dudley, this would have been maybe four months before the end of the uh, qualification window. This was end of 2021. And I said, Dudley, I'm really frustrated. I'm, I get a coach for a day here. I get a coach for three days over here. And this is just my life right now. And I'm really struggling. It's just frustrating me. Um, I'm not sure if this is going to work. And Dudley's words of wisdom were, look, I think you're smart enough to be able to take an amalgamation of many different coaches and just kind of take the best of it and leave the rest behind. I think, you, I think that's at least a better situation than being stuck full-time with one bad coach. And it's like, you know, it was kind of like a glass half full. Uh, appreciation of the situation that I was in. Um, but yeah, it's a, there's a lot of information out there, but it's also, if you don't have the, the basic understanding of things, that information just goes over your head. And one thing that I learned along this process and have, have, have learned many times before and keep relearning it is that often someone will give you a body of information. And if you're looking at that as a complete novice, you may pick out a few bits of information. There may be a few data points in there that make sense. But what I found is that I keep that information and I keep looking back at that note every month or every two months, because as you learn more and as your vocabulary in that world improves, that same piece of information continues to add more value to your life because in 80 or 90% of the information you just glossed over, you didn't understand what it was trying to explain to you. And I have this one, I call it a dissertation. It was a several thousand word explanation of where I should train, what equipment I should train on, what I should look for. Um, again, written by a guy called Mike Schneider, who's from Ontario, Canada, who I found randomly online. And I kept referring back to that piece every couple of months. And it just made more sense every time I reread it. And there were pieces of information in there that I completely missed. And so, yeah, no full-time coach. Um, but we made it. I like the, the story just gets more and more incredible. Like, I, I, honestly, I, I, I so want to be your assistant to whatever you need me for when Disney finds this, right? Like, <laughs> remember the small, not good looking people in your life, please. Um, I, I, I got to say this, though. Um, you know, I'm the product of a single mom, two kids. Canada played this sport you might have heard of called hockey together yeah. like the snow you and i to make this lady's life even more uh painful i had to go and become a goalie right and the, the equipment alone that went into this um it, it, it's it's equivalent to what you've got how 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 um how did you piece this together 
Like, because like, like an, an, a crazy sport like hockey or equestrian riding, you're right up there in the cost, right? So like this thing yeah. that you're going to go do, it ain't cheap, man. Like, no. yeah. We're not we're not buying sandbags and trying to be the, the cornhole champ of, of Jamaica here, right? Like you're you've got to be a jet set Hollywoodish kind of guy to do this. And you're and you're doing this Han Solo. How how, how did you because I remember only a few minutes ago you had 250 pounds in your back pocket, right? Right, right. How did you do this? Well, fortunately, I had a successful career in finance and a successful career in DJing. So I had a bit of savings coming into this whole project. Um, but you're right. Not only is, is it equipment heavy, it's also really, really, really difficult in ski racing to actually get access to the right equipment. The equipment that you need to race on, a lot of it you can't go and buy in the shop. You can get pretty close. You can go and buy the consumer version of this race equipment. But if you go out onto a world-class hill that is treated for a world-class race and your equipment is the consumer grade, you just have no chance in hell. That equipment is not going to compete with the actual full-on racing equipment. And so it's really complicated. Um, there was a period in, in my racing career where I went through three or four different pairs of boots within the, pace, within the, within the space of six months. And that was because I had my, you know, my first hand-me-down boots that were given to me by a friend. Then I upgraded to a pair of race boots that were sold in, in the local town. And they weren't race boots. They were just like the consumer-grade race boot. So a month later, I get a, a whole new race boot, um, which not only is super expensive, but then you spend the cost of the race boot on modifying that boot for your specific anatomy um, and for, 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 for maximum performance. And then after a few months of racing on this boot i realized that i needed to go down the size it's all about control and, and and being able to just have perfect balance and being perfect control of your skis and anything that's slightly too big is is going to put you a massive disadvantage and so here i am contemplating buying my fourth boot in the space of about a six month window which was last jan through august or something like that so it's incredibly complicated it's not just a case of throwing money at it it's also a case of being able to understand what it is you need and being able to access those things, which typically just you have to either get through a race representative or from the factories directly. So, so I can't even imagine what that's like. And 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 I'll give you one of the embarrassing, one of the many embarrassing stories of my life. So my 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 partner Peter and I, uh, my colleague with headset, we're we're going to graduate school, and all of a sudden we have a, a bit of fortune that happens onto us. And there is a kid that, that we're coaching whose dad decides to make us a gift. And he gives us this gift of a custom-made surfboard. Mm. And the kids that we're coaching want us to go and surf with them. And we're like, okay, we'll go out with you guys on Sunday. So what do we do? Saturday, we go to test the board out. We go to this little beach and we get on out there and we're taking turns using the board. And I come out completely dejected. I've been out there for an hour and I'm like, right, this sucks. I'm going to fake an injury for tomorrow. I can't do this, mm. right? He goes out, he comes back, and, and, and while he's out there, there's this group of 10-year-old boys sitting right beside me, and they're ripping on him. <laughs> look at this guy. Look at the old guy. Look at this guy, right? About 45 minutes goes by. He comes back out of the water, uh, completely dejected, and he throws the board down on the sand. And these kids look at the board. They look at us, look back at the board, 
And one of them says, I told you. And they start dying of laughter, just dying of laughter, right? So Peter looks at me and he's like, you know what? I'm not in the mood. I, I'm, I'm going to smoke one of these kids, right? And, sure. and he looks over and he goes, hey, hey, what's the deal, man? What's so funny? And one of them goes, hey, man, did you just buy that board? And I'm like, no. And now they can't, they're dying of, of like hysterical laughter, right? And they're like, is this the first time you've ever been surfing? So, of course, we lie. Yeah. No. And one Nothing. of them goes, you're out there surfing with no wax on your board. Oh, my God. Like, dude, it was some, one of the most embarrassing things ever, right? And, and I bring up this story because you're talking about gear. You're going around the world. And you're doing this with no posse. Yeah. Like, like these guys and gals are coming in and they've got a crew. Yeah. yeah. People that they roll with. And you're coming in Han Solo <laughs> without Chewbacca. And you, you, it's got to be one of the greatest fears of somebody doing a double take and going, dude, your board has no wax on it. Right. Like, yeah. let alone not even knowing. Like, so, yeah. so how do you, how do, Again, if you tell me YouTube, I'm going to stick my finger down the throat, right? How do you get over this, man? Like, how do you, is, is, is this when you decide to, to, to try and make friends? And, and, and tell me how this incredible sponsor, Atomic, comes into yeah. Because they've been a godsend, right? Totally. So, so it's, it's all a case of breaking down a project into easy, achievable steps. So the same advice that I've given to some of the other athletes, so the 10 athletes that I'm mentoring for two spots in 2026, some of them are already ski racers. They uh, come from longitude families and they go to ski racing academies at the East Coast, et cetera, et cetera. Others are people who have never ski raced before, but they know about skiing, um, but they have no understanding of the differences between ski racing and skiing. The two things are completely different sports in terms of the equipment you use and, and all of that stuff. And so for me, the first step was to get myself into a race, any race, and to compare myself with the, the threshold that I would need to get to, to qualify. And I think all of us have had those moments where you may sit on the side of a, a hockey rink or an ice rink or a football pitch. And there are some things that the players or the athletes are doing that you're like, okay, that's pretty hard. And there are some things that those guys do, and you're just blown away by the God-given talent or the training that has gone into getting that level of capability. And you may say, I'll never be able to do that. Whether that's watching Usain Bolt race 100 meters in under 10 seconds, whether that's uh, a figure skater doing a triple axel, you're like, some things you're just like, I'll never be able to do that. And so for me, the first step was to get into a race course and have a look at the athletes who are at the threshold for qualification of the Olympics and just ask myself, can I get to that level? Do I believe in myself that we're training, I can get there? And so I show up to my first race in a consumer boot, not even a race boot, a consumer boot. I show up with a ski that is five years old, which the age doesn't matter, but the regulations have changed. So the ski that all the kids are on is it's 30% easier to turn than this old thing that I have. I didn't even bother to buy a race suit because I didn't want to be that guy that had all of the equipment, and none of the skill. I was happy for people to see me as the outsider, as the outlier. I have photos from my first race where I'm wearing a black pair of ski pants and a black ski jacket, and it's not even a, a race helmet. 
and I've got my race bib over my ski jacket and I stand out not only because I'm not the same color as any of these kids, but I'm also six foot six. And so I was just happy to stand out because I wasn't trying to hide anything. I wasn't trying to blend in. I was at the beginning of this crazy project and my deficiencies, I was happy to wear on my sleeve. Um, and that's how it started. And what's interesting is when you're trying something so outlandish that people can get behind and yours, you look like a fish out of water. Again, there's a certain level of humanity where people will help you and people will give you advice and people will kind of point you in the right direction. And you just slowly start to piece it together. Now, going from that first ever race in Montana in January of 2020 to picking up a sponsor with Atomic, the best ski brand on planet, I would say, Michaela Schifrin's sponsor. Um, Not too shabby there. Yeah, was, was, a, was a long, long, long road of buying secondhand equipment, finally getting a deal where I could buy brand new equipment at racer level prices, you know, athlete prices and not paying retail price. Um, and at some point, recording a podcast similar to this, during a moment when I was stuck away from mountains and I was sitting in Barcelona, um, just really working the media side of this whole project, um, when we finished recording, the guy's name is Jonathan Ellsworth. He records a podcast called uh, Blister. He has many different podcasts under that, uh, the Blister Review and, and whatnot. When we stopped recording, he said, hey, man, I came into this podcast kind of doubting your intentions and really not sure why you're trying to do this thing. And at the end of it, I feel like I'm your biggest fan. You've sold me on what it is that you're trying to do and why this is important. What can I do to help you? And I said, well, I need to buy a new race boot. This is going to be my sixth, my fourth race boot in six months. I need to buy a new ski because I just destroyed my main ski training on a glacier. And I need a bunch of equipment. And that's going to run me at least 10 grand before I even get into the boot fitter and to modify all of this stuff to make it uh, as it should be. He said, okay, uh, so what can I do? I said, if you could just share this podcast with some of the contacts you have at the, at the, at the manufacturers, that would be super helpful. And I gave him my top three brands with Atomic being number one that I would want to uh, work with. And I got a call from Atomic a couple of weeks later and we started chatting and the, we signed the deal a few weeks after that. Dude, you know what? Like you, you, you make me feel so lazy, dude. Like you, <laughs> you, you are, you know, and, and I hope, I hope I don't offend you when I say this, right? I heard this great story about Nike. And and Phil Knight was um, in a conference, and and someone had asked him something along the lines of, um, "What is what is Nike all about?" And he talks about, um, you know, what it'd be like to see someone run in the rain, and he says, "You know, we're the people on the sidelines cheering for you. That's what Nike is." And and when you think about it, right, and you deduce it a little bit. Your slogan is just do it. It's yeah. not win or just yeah. win, just be a champion. It's just try. Yeah. Just try. And and you know, you if I use the 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 words from Jerry Maguire, like, dude, you you are like you're the king of of Quan of trying. Like, like <laughs> you are you just do it, man. So so yeah. I, I I, I pray that more people that, that can help you in your plight hear you because you, you, you're you're incredible, man. You're just incredible. I'm, I'm blessed to have had the chance even to meet you. Um, okay, 
because we, we got to be respectful of the time and and I've got to make you promise you'll talk to me again because I want to segment to some of the things that you have a passion for and you 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 right. for helping. Yep. But what I also love about you, one of our similarities is taking a sport that, that we each love and try to bring it to, to those who, who would not else have the chance to experience what we experienced. And, and I feel that passion in the world of ice hockey. And, and, and I'm a proud member of working with the, the NHL with, with Hyfe, which is called Hockey is for Everyone. And, yep. I, and I'm very, very blessed to have someone in my life um, by the name uh, of Mr. John Sanfel with the NHL and to have a dear friend that that's been in my life for 20 some odd years. That's Mr. Willie O'Ree, um, the, the first uh, black in the NHL. He, he's, he's not only an incredible human being, but, but an incredible mentor to me. You're trying to do the same thing with, with kids in, in Jamaica, learning yeah. how to ski. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about your passion for getting more kids involved? Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone that just heard that sentence, you probably would smile as I did. Getting kids in Jamaica to ski, it sounds absurd. So let's just uh, back up a second and break skiing into two distinct categories. There is alpine slash downhill skiing, and there is cross-country skiing slash Nordic skiing. So I'm a big believer that the future of Jamaica's alpine skiers, I was the first ever alpine skier, and hopefully there'll be an alpine ski racer representing Jamaica at every winter Olympics going forward. The future of that side of skiing is going to come from the diaspora. That is the kids that grow up near mountains, the kids that grow up with parents that have the financial wherewithal to have them get onto skis at an early age, much earlier than I did. Um, most ski races started at two, not 32, like I did. And as I said a few times already in this recording, I have 10 athletes who are fighting for two Alpine spots for the Jamaica team in 2026. So I feel like that is on cruise control and I'm mentoring them and helping them understand the qualification process and helping them understand how to talk to sponsors and, and get what they deserve. What I'm super excited about as I look at my cross-country skis here that just arrived from Atomic a few hours ago is finding strong athletic talent in Jamaica proper, on the island, uh, Jamaicans born, raised and bred, that I can train to be strong cross-country skiers by virtue of using the summer variant, which is called roller skiing. So it's the exact same thing. You have these long skis and you propel them in the same way you would a cross-country ski or Nordic skiing. I'm a believer that you can take a world-class athlete um, who has a a great ability at middle distance running and put them on cross-country skis with a good deal of coaching and within a matter of weeks i would say conservatively four but optimistically two weeks get them up to the minimum threshold to be a qualifier for the next olympic games now there are many reasons why i feel it's so much easier than the two years that i had to put into downhill skiing um, one being the amount of time you can put in per day which could be a matter of hours compared to 40 seconds per run in a course. On a, on a normal training day, I would only be getting 10, maximum 12 runs in a course. Um, and also the, the threshold for qualifying is just that much easier. Now, my first goal, again, to breaking down a big project into small steps, my first goal is to get um, a, a male and female representative of Jamaica uh, at the Winter Games. The bigger goal, is to actually turn this into uh, a Trojan horse, if you like, or a, or, or a way to get more countries into the, into the Winter Olympics. There were 91 countries 
in competition in Beijing when I competed last year, exactly a year ago, um, which was a record number of uh, countries. The year before in the delayed Tokyo Summer Olympics, there were 206 countries. So the disparity between the winter and the summer games is huge. Now, I believe that with this proof of concept of getting some Jamaicans to the Winter Olympics in a short period of time, I believe that there's the chance to, for us to have 30 or 40 new countries to the Winter Games in 2026. And I believe that there's a chance for us to find ways for countries from the African continent to be able to lock in medals in the Winter Games in something that they are just so naturally talented at, middle distance, long distance runners. If you look at any podium from any Olympics over the last few decades and see where the majority of those medals are going, if it's not Jamaica, it's the African continent. And I believe we could do the same on cross-country skis. So that's what I'm working on as a, as a bigger, grander objective right now. I mean, the, re the reality of it is um, imagine if we could just eliminate the cost barrier to sport. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, I, I don't believe uh, the best athletes in the world are, are all within just one or two or three or four. Right. Sports. Yeah. Imagine if you could that cro crossover for just opportunity, you know? What, so what so one of the things, one of the things that's really interesting is twofold. The biggest barrier to entry, as you say, surrounding the kind of economics of getting someone from Jamaica or from Africa to be good at a winter sport is going to be uprooting them, having them live in Norway or having them live in, in, in America or somewhere where they're going to get access to winter, right? By training these athletes in the summer variant, which is highly analogous to the, the winter, the, the winter original, um, you remove a huge chunk of that cost. They can train right on their doorstep. You don't have to pay for them to fly around. Yes, they'll have to fly for racing, but that could be a month or two of the year as opposed to a, a six or a 12 month um, kind of commitment. Secondly, I'm a strong believer that by trying to open up these sports to another 30 or 40 countries, all of the brands would be salivating at the opportunity to get behind this. In this world where we are also focused on diversity, equality, and inclusion, I believe that the kind of the forerunners in this project of bringing new countries to the, to the Olympics will get a free ride from all the sponsors and they'll be super happy for each of these new countries to have a representative that is competing in, in, in their sports. So you're again. This is the the diversity of your incredible brain. You're you're attacking this in so many different ways. Yeah. With a creative spin on it. Um, is Atomic in? Are are, are they are they still oh, yeah. working with? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Uh, I know that you've got a tight crunch. You've got another talk that you've got to jump on very soon. What's next for you? What's coming up? Uh, I have a, pub, a bunch of public speaking engagements uh, over the over the next few months. Um, unfortunately, all of those are private, so I can't invite attendees or, or, or listeners to the podcast to come along. Um, but definitely, I'll be getting some of that content online soon. And if there's anyone that's looking for ambassadors for diversity in winter sports to come and speak at their, their events or, or their company, reach out. You can find me on Instagram, benji.ski or just type that into your web browser and that will go to my website. We'll make sure to have that contact information put out as well. Benji, I can't thank you enough. And, and just know this, that this is segment one. We have, yeah. to, we have to do segment two um, because there's so many little teasers that you threw at me that I didn't even know were coming. And, and I want to swat those back over the net. Back. <laughs> so 
God bless you for all that you're doing and, and God bless you for what you're going to be doing to help so many kids around the world. Cause I know that your fearlessness is going to breach and breach success for so many other people. And, and I yeah, I, I, God bless that you're in this world and, and you're doing this. So any way that we can help at headset sports, let us know you had us at hello. So <laughs> with that, buddy, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me.